Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Jennifer Albright. Tim is not here today because once again we're talking about a musical. Instead, who I have here with me today is the luminous mm. Darren Hertzsegg. Hi. How I'm are you doing, Darren? Good. Uh, well, better now that we've watched <laughs> Lost Horizons. <laughs> or Lost Horizon. Lost Horizon. Excuse me. Yeah, um, tell us about today's movie, Darren. <sighs> it is a it is a sumptuous feast for the soul. As much as it is for the eyes and ears, uh, it's kind of a, it's so strange how it stands on like the precipice of like the old school style of making musicals, yet the music kind of represents the like hippy dippy kind of thing, except I feel like four or five years too late, you know, like there's like sitar in it and, and that kind of thing. And it just feels like, well, why wasn't this made in like 1966, seven, eight? And we could spend a lot of time just talking about Orientalist pastiche. Oh, we could do the whole whole episode could just be about that because that's what it is. I mean, yeah. we could definitely go Edward Said on this motherfucker. <laughs> we could, but should we? <laughs> well, um, to be fair, like you could also do that somewhat for the original. Um, the mm. original Lost Horizon was based on a very popular novel, one of the first mass market paperbacks uh, written by James Hilton, also called Lost Horizon. This is what introduced the concept of Shangri-La mm. into the culture. So it was a Westerner who created Shangri-La. It's somewhat. It's yeah. not some like ancient Eastern myth. No. I love that. Yeah, and um, it's kind of clear when you watch the the Capper film, which I watched last night, and it's actually is actually a very a very nice classic mm-hmm. film. Um, what year was the Capra? 1937. Oh wow! Okay. And um, definitely appropriate to the time, kind of, you know, after the Great War and uh, into the lead up, what they mm. didn't realize at the time was the lead up to an even worse yeah. world conflict. And there's definite longing for a simpler place. A sense of peace. Yes, exactly. But, you know, and then you have all the the Orientalist stuff mm-hmm. that, that goes well, in with it. Because, yeah, that whole like Victorian into, I guess if you really think the Victorian era died after World War II, right? Like, really? Well, this is my thing with the, um, that I thought while I was watching the original is that the premise of the film is kind of this uh, utopia mm-hmm. away, far removed from the outside world. But part of that premise is that people have been coming to Shangri-La over hundreds of years and bringing in parts of their cultures mm, that mm-hmm. they want to preserve. But in the film, the emphasis is definitely put on... Oh, the Eastern aspect. Well, no, actually, like, it's a Western... It's an Eastern setting, but they're protecting Western culture. And when Ronald Coleman goes to meet the High Lama yeah. in the original, the High Lama gets very vehement about uh, realizing, in his words, a Christian ideal oh that's interesting peace and love because you know and again in the original um he was a belgian um mm. uh, christian missionary who mm-hmm. like stumbled into the valley mm-hmm. and stayed there for like 200 years um 
So there's all that. <laughs> well, which I actually think is interesting that that's missing a lot of that, like the, the idea of protecting Christianity, because he doesn't really talk about that in this one when, when we finally meet the High Lama. No, it's definitely more of a kind of Soundies hippy-dippy, like, yeah, man, like everything's cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's I think it's interesting to preserve Christianity in the hills of like... Tibet. Of Tibet? Yeah. What? So weird. That's white as fuck, yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to our, um, the actual film we're going to be discussing, um, this movie appeared in 1973. The inverse of when the other appeared. Holy shit. Perhaps we're, that came from the llamas. We're deep into some numerology mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you want to read tarot while we do this? I can if, if I need to, if I have to. I should have brought some crystals. Well... Oh, well. Too late. We did it for Under the Cherry Moon. We did do it for Under the Cherry Moon, and it was worth it. And Prince guided our hand. He did guide our Had he died already? Yes. Ugh. Because remember, we contacted him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We contacted him, and yeah. he, he guided our hand to what we had to do. Now it's all flooding back to me. Yes. Like it's the memory of that wonderful me movie. But, oh. <laughs> don't, don't get me worked up about something that's not Lost Horizon. We'll, we'll get severely derailed, <laughs> and we don't want to do that. Yeah, um, so anyway, this was... A, <laughs> Obviously, uh, Lost Horizon 1973, this was a musical remake of the Capper film. Mm -hmm. It really hews closely to the structure of the Capper film, which I think goes a long way in making it watchable (laughs) because the the story in the Capper film is very solid Mm -hmm. and they kind of have a template of plot and characters to work with. So that helps a lot. But, you know, everything they fucked up, they fucked up in their own way. Because this one just really ambles. Yeah, it it takes its sweet time. It just like, I feel like um, this. Surely this was one of those. Um, again, this being the tail end of the bloated studio musical era. Like, right. I just feel like this was a road show that lasted like three hours. And actually, I have some stories about that. Okay, that I can save. Um, kind of when we talk uh, after we've talked about the movie itself. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was one thing that occurred to me while watching this is how it really could have been made 10 years before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and would have been, it feels very it feels stodgy. really dated not just from like the style of filmmaking but also the way it deals with the subject and yeah. it almost feels like it's trying to tap into something hip yes but not. fails so miserably i mean by casting michael york you know you've got hip in, a, in like in like a macrame mesh tank, uh, not tank top, turtleneck. A macrame mesh turtleneck. You know, Michael York was like the like. It's like they were putting him across as this like super sexy leading man in the seventies, and he's always left me just ice cold. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I've always feel like maybe he got into that position because uh, I think I said this while we were watching the movie, but because he was the only British British man that didn't have bad teeth. So the bar is set pretty low, you know, like if that's all it takes to have good teeth and like pretty good hair, you know. This guy has all his own teeth. Let's and he doesn't him, have Let's a, make him a star. He doesn't look like he's going to become a troll in two years. No. You know, so he like, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, it's fine. Sure. Yeah. But it's like that kind of like gross, like Logan's run, like oh my God. flowing short top kind yeah, of yeah, sexuality yeah. that's just like really icky. But it's like, he's it's so... Like, it's like thinking about your parents going to a fondue party. <laughs> well, I don't know. That could be pretty amazing. Mom, <laughs> my parents, at least. But uh, yeah, he's just so stodgy, too, and so like uptight. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't know. I don't know. And he made such weird noises throughout the movie. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know. Maybe we'll get there when we talk more more fully about the watching experience. <laughs> but yeah, I think that maybe some of the stodginess came from the man who produced this film. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about Ross Hunter. Ross Hunter. Okay. Um, Ross Hunter was a phenomenally successful film producer. He produced um, Douglas Sirk, uh, Magnificent's Obsession and All That Heaven Allows. Okay. Um, he produced all the Tammy movies with mm-hmm. Debbie Reynolds mm-hmm. that were a big hit. He produced some of Doris Day's biggest hits. So he's a heavy hitter. He basically and he basically made Doris Day into kind of the squeaky clean sex mm. pot mm-hmm. that she was in the movie she did with Rock Hudson. Right. Um, I should also point out that he was flamboyantly gay. Ross Hunter's longtime partner was also an associate producer mm. on this movie and also um, produced a lot of other um, features with him. Oh, interesting. Um, you kind of can't talk about this movie without putting in it into its kind of cultural context, mm-hmm. which again was, and everybody's kind of familiar with the Easy Riders Raging Bulls story sure. where the bloated... Hollywood epic was kind of swept aside. Yeah, for the auteur, personal auteur films. Yes, these new, lean, personal pictures. So this movie came out like about four years after Mm -hmm. Easy Rider, which is amazing when you watch it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely is why it feels like from such, especially when you think about what else is going on in movies at the time. It's like, well, especially, so this was 73. So you could have gone like, you could have caught this in like the week that it played and then like gone across the street and seen like the last detail. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And just, uh, yeah. And had a very different experience. Yeah. And this is definitely of a piece with Ross Hunter's whole approach to film in that he was pretty unashamed about the fact that he just wanted to give people very clean, uh, not too challenging well, it's but gussied up entertainment. It's fascinating that he like the sort of Cirque melodrama works so well for its time, and then especially when you like see the work of like a Fassbender who was inspired by that and updates it to a point where it doesn't feel dated, even, yeah. even by today's standards. When you watch it, so it's interesting that someone involved with those movies that inspired someone else who took it in such a different way. It's interesting that he couldn't himself make that transition and sort of stick with the same kind of like melodramas, but update it with yeah. the sort of like shooting strategies of the time. Well, and also like you know, speaking if you're speaking about Fassbender, mm. an overtly queer filmmaker, Ross Hunter was not. Overtly queer. In fact, um, I found an article where um, there was a uh, a writer called Ron Bass who tried to interview him for for a book about Rock Hudson, and Hunter swore to him that he he was like, "I didn't even know that Rock was gay." Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like two, like even like two gay men hang out together, even two closeted gay men. Linda like, Evans, I can understand not knowing after Dynasty. Because, yeah. you know, the whole thing is like, he, like, <laughs> shortly before he, like, even announced that he had AIDS, yeah. he had, was on a season of Dynasty. Yeah. And he was kind of the, like, spoiler between uh, Crystal and Blake, the, t- <laughs> the heart of the show, if you will. And then afterwards, Linda Evans had, like, made statements like, I had no idea it was gay. She was worried she got AIDS from, because, you know, no one knew anything about it. Yeah. So that I understand. No, Linda, you get it from poppers. I mean, this is, the, exactly. Uh. Well, or, well, I guess you don't get it from Yanni, because she was married to him for a while. And she's not been <laughs> diagnosed with the disease. But, um, <laughs> but you know, 
she married Yanni, so <coughs> how 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 tuned in is she? How, how plugged in is she? <laughs> she just really loves communicating with the ether. Exactly. Music. She would have been great, actually, for Lost Horizon. Yeah, exactly. Because Yanni's music, oh my God. Oh my God. 2019, or sorry, we'd have to do 2023 if we're yeah. keeping up with, the, or... Should have to be 2037. Yeah. Right? So we'll do that for the 100th anniversary. Hopefully Yanni will be alive still. I think he'll be dead. Because <laughs> we'll he would be We'll get him to start great. working on it now. Ugh. Yeah. Before the world burns up, there will be another Lost Horizon musical. That we need one. We need one. Um, yeah. So this, while this movie is camp, it... Well, in its truest sense, because I don't think it meant... It definitely did not know that it was... No, and this here's another quote from Ross Hunter about the kind of movies that he made. They weren't great, but they weren't supposed to be. I gave the public what they wanted, a chance to dream, to live vicariously, to see beautiful women, jewels, gorgeous clothes, melodrama. This man is claiming he wasn't flamboyant? <laughs> this, is, this is like a Liberace quote. He was, yeah, it's under the table. Interesting. <laughs> And um, again, also not very tuned into the time, because um, this is him commenting on the cinema of the 70s. Mm. I never thought sex would become an arena sport or audiences peeping toms. Really? Yeah. What? Did he never like study history or? <laughs> you know that again, like that's that's the era of where mm-hmm. you didn't put you didn't put sex on the screen. It was you just gave people entertainment. No, it was that a they spilling bottle. Family to. Spilling bottle of champagne cutaway. Yeah. To, to imply, I think the train it, goes into the tunnel. Which is the there's a is it the Cirque movie with um, I think that oh yeah I was gonna say I think that has that shot. It has some pretty clear shots of like all the heaven, heaven allows. allows has some pretty clear shots where it's like dramatic cutaways where yeah. like I feel like the the tipped over glass, you know like like he's spilling his seed into her. <laughs> Isn't that with Rock Hudson? It, maybe it is Rock Hudson. I think it is Rock yeah. Hudson. Maybe I'm getting it confused. Karen yeah. Rock Hudson. <laughs> yeah, it is Rock Hudson, which yeah. makes it even... Uh, but Ross Hunter didn't even know he was gay, so... Did he know Tab Hunter was gay? His brother? His own brother, <laughs> His Tab, Hunter. Brother, Tab <laughs> Hunter? The Ross and Tab Hunter story? <laughs> now, I don't have a source for that. <laughs> well, that, uh, would, that would rule, though. Oh, it would be so good. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is... A producer, I guess you could say a producer of the old school, where it's like, give him spectacle, mm-hmm. you know, but nothing to... This one. Yeah, but the thing is, yeah. the crazy thing about the spectacle is some of the most restrained spectacle... It is. And ...these like, eyes have ever witnessed. We will definitely get to that. Okay. Like, um, the most important thing that I should mention about Ross Hunter is that he also produced Airport. Right. Which made its budget ten times over. It was insanely popular spawned several sequels and that spawned was, spoofs right that yeah. was before this obviously yeah 1970 because this ruined him or yeah. ruined his movie career yeah and um he went on to produce this and then never again produced another theatrical feature well when you make a statement like lost horizon what else is there to say you can't follow it can you in the visual it's medium. so complete it's a complete yeah. vision it's 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 fucking Magical. Yeah, it's a manifesto, <laughs> it's a treatise, it's everything. There's nothing more to be said. It's a mic drop on film. But yeah, and again, like, Airport is definitely, you know, one of those, like, big, lumbering, mm-hmm. like, overstuffed kinds of movies that they, you could say now, oh, they don't make them like that anymore. They didn't make them, like, That's all they make the now, I feel. 
Well, yeah, but you know, like I mean, the, but it's it, isn't it, it was very it was again like if we're talking about the year after Easy Rider, sure, it's like well, yeah, it's dude, yeah, but you know what does he know that we don't like that movie was just insanely successful, you know, now, like I've apparently actually, everybody wanted to go fucking see Airport. I've never seen Airport. So everybody but me apparently. Yeah. But is it it's, is it one is it of of the towering infernos Poseidon adventure like yeah all star ensemble yeah, all stars um, disaster, disaster kind of film kind of film and, but it's about um, at an airport because airplanes yeah. a spoof of that yes right yeah which is funny that George Kennedy yeah is in Lost Horizon and then goes I think he if he doesn't have a bit part in airplane he's definitely a naked gun which mm-hmm. follows in that grand tradition exactly um, so this was a guy. Who'd had a significant cultural impact, and yes. you know maybe had a misstep. Maybe. I mean, I think yes, but uh, <laughs> well, especially with some of the talent involved. It's a very, it's a very weird starring lineup. Well, sure, it seems like a. <laughs> well, because what we have, uh, uh, Peter Finch. Yeah, playing um, again. If you've seen the 1937 version, he's in the Ronald Coleman. Role. He's um, Robert Conway in this version. Yeah, and he's a world-renowned diplomat. Because that's a thing. <laughs> because I can't tell you that I know the name of a diplomat outside of like the Secretary of State. To get really, to be really known, you have to just be an absolute ghoul like Henry Kissinger. I, I mean, I guess right, but like Kissinger was the Secretary of State. That would be funny if Peter Finch was like a, a Henry Kissinger type. Oh, like, can I mean, you imagine? Can you imagine Henry Kissinger in Shangri La? Like, well, he would send planes back to bomb it. I After feel like <laughs> that might have helped his arc if he started off there and came to learn something, you know? The secret bombing of Shangri-La. Oh, my God. <laughs> so good. A whole, a whole like, and get McNamara in to, like, direct the war effort against Shangri-La. Oh, my God. I don't want to get into it too much until we start talking about actually the plot of the film because yeah. there's some elements that I think would be actually open up for that direction to happen, read the gold. Yeah. In the Rhine, if you will. Yeah, because that kind of gets dropped really quickly. So quick. It was more of a thing in the... Again, they were using the template of the original, uh-huh. but they they move a couple of plot points in ways that, that work okay, and then they fumble mm. the rest of them. You got your all your extra Star-studded stuff, cast. cast. Well, besides Peter Finch, we have already addressed George Kennedy, yes. who I couldn't tell you what he did besides the Naked Gun movies and this. Uh, we have the beautiful Sally Kellerman. I love Sally Kellerman. Who can actually sing. She can actually Frankly, sing. Frankly, everyone is dubbed in this. She's not. Uh, she, I, I actually really do love her. I have loved her since I saw Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School in the theater. Uh, <laughs> and then it blew my mind when I found out she was in the original MASH. Was she on the TV show as well? No? No, that was Lyra Swit. Okay. Because like no no one carried over from the movie to the show. Um, because I've only ever seen the movie. I've never I think seen Radar the sh- did. Okay. Yeah. No Sutherland. No Kellerman. No uh, Gould. No. No. You know who cares? I mean, Alan Alda <laughs> was on it. That's a whole different kettle of fish. But um, who else do we have? We have um, Bobby Van, who is the revelation of the film to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. And again, a kind of uh, a little bit of an archaic type of star, like the mm-hmm. all-around singing, dancing mm-hmm. star, which, oh, geez. You know, we could go around and around for hours, like, talking about um, musicals on stage and musicals on film and how usually is the case with movies, like, you get non-singing stars and then you just dub them. Yeah. Um, or, or nowadays what they do is they don't dub them. 
they auto tune them or they pull pull a Woody Allen and just or they just sound l- really off. Leave them out to bear. Or you cu- or you kind of shoehorn Russell yeah. Crowe into a role. And- oh well, apparently, um, speaking <laughs> like that even back in the day for uh, Guys and Dolls, Marlon Brando could not sing, no. but his performance was pieced together apparently sometimes uh, syllable by syllable. And that's how they do stuff now in like the era of Pro Tools. Like, can you imagine yeah, doing splicing, that back then with splicing tape. tape? Yeah, that's insane. That owns. That's yeah. amazing. And it's still like a coherent performance. And of course, they fucking do that for Brando. Like everyone else could just go. Yeah, because like, he's got such a distinctive voice. Like, how do you? Yeah. Although I will say, Peter Finch, the voice they got was pretty good. I yeah, because I've actually seen people complaining about the the voices that they choose to dub over in this movie. I think they work fine. I think that because a lot of times you see a. A voice dub where you're like, oh, that's not my voice. Had I not known, I wouldn't have questioned it. The only giveaway is that there's the one intense number where Peter Finch is really feeling it. And he's, like, not taking deep breaths, but the singer on the song would have to, like, do it. Like, it's just physically. Yeah. He's, he's physically, he's, he's doing. He's moving his lips. Yeah. He's I think do- we talked about this in Aria. Did we? Yeah. Because, again, it's, you know, you when you see someone actually sing mm-hmm. operatically, it's a tremendous physical yeah, it's, strain. It's a physical thing. Yeah, he, he's yeah. giving us, like, Stella Adler, but the yeah. the recording <laughs> is giving us Ethel Merman. And yeah. it's like, it, it doesn't quite, like, match up. Yeah, and again, like, in Aria, you have a lot of people, you have people mouthing without, With the, uh, you know. But, um, yeah, Bobby Van actually sings and dances. It's a yeah. relief when he actually dances because it's the only good dancing in the movie. Yeah. Well, besides the the um, the Shangri La Gay Men's uh, chorus, <laughs> Shangri La Gay Men's chorus. <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get there. Well, the words are getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, and speaking of non-singers, um, one of the last people you think would be cast in a musical, Liv Ullman. <laughs> Who? What a waste. Yeah. I like, mean, you get okay. So Liv Ullman, like what? Uh, just this fantastic presence in like so many Bergman films, like mm-hmm. and literally one of the most respected and revered actresses of I've, her time, yeah. of her, you know, at, with a long career. Very long career. All she does in this movie is mime words and simper at Peter Finch. Yeah, she's, she's mooning. And the thing is, is that she's based on um, Jane Wyatt's character in the original, who was presented as a very bright like intellectually curious mm. woman who was actually part of the plan to bring oh. uh, Conway to Shangri-La because she'd read his writings and responded to him and they're like well we need men like him in Shangri-La I just feel like I need to point out though on a side note that I feel like the plot of this is essentially also the plot of Atlas Shrugged <laughs> We're going to take the best and brightest and take them to our <laughs> hidden retreat and save the world. I mean... Whoa, it's Galt's Gulch in Tibet. It's Galt. It's it's like it's like Eastern Galt. Oh, my fucking God. Galt, Galt goes east. <laughs> the continuing adventure, the continuing oriental adventures of John Galt. If I may use the parlance of perhaps even an Ayn Rand. Now I'm imagining uh, a libertarian musical. Oh, and it's hysterical. Listen, the Fountainhead... Oh my fucking! Just God. use the movie script. Add in some musical numbers. <laughs> and Bob's your uncle. How do you think Howard Rourke would dance? Um, it well, would definitely have to be a style which is um, never, never singularly been, his own. Never been seen by man. It would yeah. have to be so singular and individual that it would completely rock everyone to their core and realize that the dance they've been doing has been wrong. Yes. Uh, it would be so genius as to be as to be beyond anything and transcendent. <laughs> every step, every move would be just pure transcendence. That's how I feel like I would work with dance. That's a tall order. 
it's a tall order, but I feel like it can be it can be done for for this Fountainhead musical that's gonna starting starting now. We are searching for our for our Howard Rourke. Our Howard Rourke. I think we can find him. Yeah, they're out there, <laughs> or so, not, or they're on an island. If you have a singular dance video, please uh, post. Please, it yes, and yes. Send us a link. Um, yeah. So, um, but uh, Liv doesn't have anything to do. No, she's really. It's interesting that you bring up how that character is handled because she seems like she has agency. Yeah. And is like an interesting person. I don't know who yeah. she is. She seems kind of uptight in the beginning of this movie. And then as it goes on, suddenly she likes him after he tells yeah. her after only knowing her for like two days that yeah. he wants to like be with her. He comes in really strong too. And she seems like uncomfortable. Yeah. She just doesn't, but then like it is a hundred percent that kind of body language that people are always railing against guys for not reading where it's like, Oh, I'm moving I mean, away from you and not looking at you directly. To be fair to him though. He, he's not like, very pushy he just tells her mm-hmm. and he's not like touchy or anything like that he's just kind of yeah. like lays it out there and she's like mm-hmm. that's very 70s like and saying like hey I, i'd like to fuck you you want to fuck yeah i think you're groovy <laughs> want to hang our hang-ups up and maybe <laughs> but but then of course we're treat. i feel like her turn happens in that musical number where they it's a th- one of the, my favorite tropes of musicals is the uh, thinking musical number yeah, there's a this. This is like the Dune of musicals. Oh my god! But I mean, it's I, I, there is precedent for it. Like um, the movie version of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying right. has a he's thinking, she's thinking number. Yeah. And then I mean, Beauty and the Beast does it so well mm-hmm. in 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 the uh, Disney musical, yeah. the the cartoon where they have the thinking. They, they do their love song that way, but it really doesn't work in this. No, it looks weird. Because they're because both of them are such are doing such um internal style of acting that there's no indication of it and because there's so much walking in this movie, walking and singing. Walking in lieu of choreography. Like yeah, it's it's a walking film with like long tracking shots but long wide tracking shots. Panavision. Yeah. Which the, and this is a thing that some some directors forget is um, you can use the whole frame and you should use the whole frame. Well, and it really, there's no reason, like, yeah, there's no reason for this to be two, three, five. Like, it's anamorphic even, I think. Yeah. It was, it was wide. Yeah, and the thing is, the original, um, the original Capra film is shot one, three, three. Oh, okay, yeah. Black and white, but is legitimately breathtaking Mm -hmm. in spots. And the, the sets in it are these like gorgeous streamlined modern um, mm. sets like for for Shangri-La and like when they first see it it's like it's really beautiful yeah because when, when they come in in this one it looks like some kind of like novelty hotel I, yeah it's or yeah like a planned golf community or something or, or like <laughs> like Christopher Lee and Fu Manchu's like hideaway yeah. it feels like a bond but like it doesn't have the like is it Ken Adams who did the production design in those early Bond movies? Did the, I, I think, think so. it is. Because, yeah. like, you go to Dr. No's hideaway, yeah. and it's it's breathtaking. It is beautiful. Like, the production design of the rooms and everything. It's like, yeah, I would stay here. I would join Spectre. Yes. But, but Shangri-La, there's nothing inviting. You just have, like, an old, tarted-up John Gilgood. So the production designer on this was um, E. Preston Ames. Okay. Born in 1906. Okay. Um, he... Did, he's most known for American in Paris, mm. Gigi. Oh, so he's got some legit airport, and uh, of course, earthquake. Aha! Uh-huh. 
in the vein of airport. But again, it's like, um, so the guy would have been like 70, creeping up on 70 yeah. when this came out. So maybe, I don't know. Again, like we're dealing with like kind of like a throwback musical and maybe they weren't really willing to like push themselves. I mean, yeah. Or they may not have had the budgets that they had before. Yeah, to, um, to really I, be lavish. I should point out that um, this is kind of uh, this kind of builds off another shitty musical. Um, the sets for Shangri La are actually repurposed from the Camelot sets. Oy. there you go. Camelot is a fucking terrible movie. I haven't <laughs> seen it. I've been told that it's extremely boring and nothing happens. It sucks. Good music. Mm. Mm. Like this, this the soundtrack for this movie slaps. Well, it's kind of groovy, especially yeah. like once we get to the end. Yeah, and it's that that like that like. Like comes in the, the reprise <laughs> of the opening credit song. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about how the musical numbers function in the movie because yeah, um, the music we should mention was done by uh, Burt Bacharach and Hal oh, David. Was it um, ever an absolutely timeless pop musical partnership, which was essentially dissolved From after this. the experience of making this movie. <sighs> now, was the experience like what? What do you what do you know about the actual? production of it like was it just a disaster like did people hate working on it like well apparently peter finch said he enjoyed making it i mean yeah he didn't have to do anything he just, <laughs> all he did was walk around and like be super internal and look his his performance is about as it's it's like as quiet and refined as al pacino and cruising where he's like he's literally doing the blank slate he's style a cipher, of acting yes yeah you but just, which makes sense in cruising because yeah. you have you're well, obviously something is sure. roiling under the surface it's but. like the is it the cold experiment is that what it's called the one where you, they flash a word oh yeah that's what it's doing it's like you bring whatever it is that you think yeah, should be to cut, the role you cut from peter finch to a bowl of soup and yeah then you cut from peter finch to live Holman. yeah and it's like <laughs> oh okay I, I get it yeah it's definitely <laughs> Especially, like, I kept on wanting him to be, like, mad as hell. Like, I wanted him Yeah, we're to talking go, Howard Beale from Network. Yeah, <laughs> and he did not have any of that firebrand kind of power that the, that the, that, um, what's his, what's his name? Uh, Howard Beale has. Yeah, well, you just said it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, um, poor, he, he's trying his best. I think the material was just not up to snuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we didn't really mention John Gilgood in, in, Yellow face. Well, yeah, we're um, we're very slowly working our way through the cast. Um, I mean, uh, who have we missed? We have yeah, and I mean, oh, Liz Hussey. Oh, Olivia. Olivia, Hussey. not Liz. Olivia, Liv Hussey. Olivia Hussey. Um, uh, real Hussey in this film. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the thing about Olivia Hussey is that if you if your your high school English teacher made you watch her. Uh, in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Ain't no one made me watch that. I watched it of my own accord. Well. Because I really I really liked it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you had to watch it in high school English, you were fine because you were, you know, you were under 18. Mm. You can't watch it now because she was 17 and she took her tits out. Yeah, so. but it was in Europe. <laughs> 13 is the age of consent. That's just how they do things there. Oh, when I went to... She's got some jugs in this movie, but that's because she was pregnant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, she At the time, she was married to Dean Martin's son. Son. Yeah. Dean Martin's son. Okay, interesting. She was married to Dean Paul Martin, who okay. uh, I believe passed away um, in the 80s. Oh. Uh, he was doing military service. He was a pilot. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Crash. Yeah. Now, I think he's buried in the, the LA National Cemetery. Oh, really? By UCLA. Huh. Yeah. The veteran one? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Who knew? So anyway, she's pregnant, and so she's got quite the... Doesn't stop her, though, <laughs> from having multiple, quote-unquote, dance numbers. 
she, she's an okay dancer, I guess. She, I mean, for what she does, she has to do kind of like a fake traditional, yeah, like Eastern inspired type dance. It feels a little Indian-y. Yeah. Like with some of the hand motions. Yeah, she's wrapped in silk and unwrapped. But it's at it's at like a quarter speed. Yeah. It's like she's got molasses on, on her. <laughs> I mean, I think that the the dance number of the film is her and Sally Kellerman's duet. In the library. In the library where they kind of walk. Sally Kellerman's kind of got the grace of like a Shelley Duvall. <laughs> so it's this like lanky, but she can kind of move. Yeah. She can't not move. Now, her singing voice, which is one of the few to be dubbed, as not dubbed. Yes. It's kind of husky. It's got real character to it. Like She has a, she has a great she voice. She has actually a really good... That's, mm. to me, the two things that were like, oh, okay, was yeah. her voice and Bobby Van's presence yeah. during his numbers. Yeah, and he sings his own numbers Yeah, he, and, well. you, and like he sings well and, and, yeah. and all that. I mean, his stand-up comic character, though, oh, my God. They, the way they let you know he's a stand-up is by laughing at his own jokes. Yeah, he's like a proto-Harry Anderson and also, like, why? Yeah, right. Why? Why does everybody just like seem to hate stand-ups all the time? Oh God, this guy's a stand-up. This is going to be terrible. Well, have you met any stand-up comedians? Unfortunately. Well, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I answered my own question. But uh, no, I mean, it's just like the lessons they learn in this movie—they happen so fast. Shangri-La yeah, has I... such power. <laughs> well, again, it's um, it's the template of the original movie where mm. you have people coming to Shangri-La basically against their will and then they kind of fall under its spell mm-hmm. and um, they realize that they're much happier in Shangri-La like for example um, the they kind of combine a couple of characters right. from the original uh, Edward Everett Norton and uh, Thomas Mitchell uh, one playing kind of a really super uptight uh, paleontologist and the other uh, swindler a okay. businessman um they give they give some bits to Bobby Van. They give some bits to George Kennedy, um, but those characters uh, discovered that maybe this place isn't so bad after all. Mm-hmm. You know, they interact with uh, some of the children. And, mm-hmm. You know, they and Edward Everett Horton, for example, discovers his passion for teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and Thomas Mitchell's character set suddenly hits on the idea of, hey, I'm going to install modern plumbing in Shangri-La. Which in this one becomes civil engineering and, like, fixing their irrigation so the, like, old women don't have to carry buckets on their heads. Yeah. And then, interestingly enough, it seems like the Edward Mitchell character is turned into the stand-up who learns that his best audience are a bunch of kids. Well, yeah, and his name, uh, because Bobby Van's character's last name is Lovett, and Lovett was Edward Everett Horton's character. Mm. He was very irritated when Thomas Mitchell's character kept calling him Lovey. Oh, 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 wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it's interesting that it just seems like all the the Capra one had some nuance, maybe. It did. It it, uh, defined its characters very well, and they played off each other very well. And in this... This movie, like the character interactions, are hap- are somewhat unclear, and they happen very clumsily mm. in a lot of ways. Um, because in the original, you had this great interplay between Thomas Mitchell's character and Edward Everett Horton's. Like he's uh, Mitchell's kind of trying to bring him out of his shell a little bit because Norton is so uh, Horton is so um, neurotic, mm. you know. Um, but then he discovers wine. He learns how to relax. You know. Oh wow, we got no wine discovery in Shangri-La. Yeah, actually, it was a scene that was cut. From the original, uh, I think the original Lost Horizon ran like three hours. Uh, oh wow! And a lot of footage was lost. It was restored uh, by the UCLA Film and Television Archive, oh, like a few years back. 
And um, but unfortunately, because some elements are missing, mm. um, they had to make do with soundtrack and uh, production stills. That's what like they that. did with the uh, Judy Garland Star Is Born. Yeah, they restored it with like stills and stuff. Yeah. Now the thing, um, the thing about Lost Horizon, it was also restored, um, and we could talk a little bit about it later um, because I have some stories about the film and its initial mm. run. Um, but that's the weird thing. Like you have a, an absolute classic, like. Capra's Lost Horizon and all these elements are just completely missing. You have a movie nobody liked, <laughs> 73 Lost Horizon. like, oh yeah, we have all this shit and it looks great. You know, everything just cut back in seamlessly. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. There's like a fertility number that survived. Oh my God, what a number. Yes. That that one, <laughs> we get this like, well, we first we get uh, John Gilgood telling Peter Finch that in Shangri-La, if a man likes... A, a woman that another man is with they tell the man and that the man who the woman is currently with must yield to the other man so there's no conflict or just does yeah and vice versa the women can do it too if like yeah and that's interesting because they um because they crib that from the original but in the original they for, they kind of forgot to give the women a oh they don't give the women there was nothing do. about like um Ronald Coleman did not ask Harry Warner oh but uh is that true for women as well like they just don't mention women like a guy likes a woman, like her voice doesn't enter into it. Oh wow! It's it's just a, it's just a conflict between. Uh, There's a Shangri-La bro code. Well, at least the '70s uh, updates it to yeah. include uh, you know the the principles of the burgeoning uh, feminist movement and yeah. uh, on the new generation. <laughs> Gloria Steinem would maybe approve. <laughs> but then we get pretty soon after that we get treated to this processional of this uh, native Shangri-Lines, the baby, and then it's this really stodgy. Yeah, like I guess it's Procession. supposed to. It's supposed to be announcing like the birth of a child. Yeah, the birth or of the child. So you get this really boring plotting procession where they're carrying a man and wife and baby on a litter, and then they do some really boring hand motions. Yes, very boring. But then, <laughs> then we get cut. It cuts in to this like amazing. The orchestration completely changes, yeah. and then out comes the quote-unquote gay men's choir and dance <laughs> troupe of, of uh, uh, Shangri-La. It's a bunch of, like, I guess, in-shape dancer men in orange loincloths that actually do some choreography yeah. that's not really in sync, though. Yeah. They maybe didn't do that many takes. That culminates <laughs> in a stunning ribbon, almost rhythm. Well, it's not really rhythmic gymnastics. They're just on one knee doing ribbon dancing. Yeah, there's like a wide, there's a wide shot of like the tableau of Shangri-La yeah. and like about 40 guys like swirling ribbons around. Uh, and then like, then after that's done, which goes on for a while, yeah, it goes right back into the boring number about <laughs> how babies, you know, one, two, one becomes two, two becomes three, three becomes, that's not even how it goes, but, <laughs> but like, oh my God. Yeah, and um, this was a number that was cut um, after it came out in theaters, and people laughed at it. Really? But, yes. But fortunately... I they, wonder why. Fortunately, they didn't throw out the footage, because we were treated to it. <laughs> oh, my, and what a... I mean, that was one of the best... Whenever people actually danced, and it actually functioned like a musical, it at least... Never got good, but at least got entertaining. Like when the gay men's uh, uh, Shangri-La uh, dance company dances, when Bobby Van does his soft shoe mm-hmm. with the kids, and it's like actually like something happens. Yeah, it, it actually it legitimately lifts your spirit 
a little yeah. bit to see Bobby Van dancing. To- absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think like that's like, it's like, oh, okay, it's a musical finally. And yeah. I think it's interesting because for about a good hour, you don't get a music one musical number. Yeah. And then suddenly you get two back to back. And I mean, my theory on that is that when they're in the real world, fleeing whatever place they're fleeing, could be in Afghanistan or a Pakistan type of a place, Kashmir maybe. Yeah. And it's very like, maybe it's trying to have some sort of like verisimilitude. Yeah. And then suddenly they get to this magical place and as they all get sucked in, they start to become more, you know, lyrical and poetic and they start singing and dancing. But I think if that, I don't think the filmmaker necessarily knew that that's what they were doing. No. Because it doesn't feel uh, assured enough in the filmmaking because I think had they maybe gone that direction, it could have been really interesting. To go to this idyllic place where people sing and dance. It would have. It actually would have fit. Um, as it was, I, this is directed by Charles Jarrett, who. Or is it Charles Charles Jarreau? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Good question. Um, he directed Anne of the Thousand Days, and then a bunch of stuff for television. This guy's a television director. Sounds like 999 Days Too Many, you know what I'm saying? After watching wow. this one. He feels like the guy who directed Jaws 2, who also directed Supergirl. Like, he's all, uh, like oh, Pierre. Oh, man. Something like that. He's like a French guy. Something like that. I forget what his name yeah. is, but uh, Jean Zwark. Yeah. That's his name. This, yeah, this this guy, I'm, I guess I didn't really go through this guy's credit credits before but like scrolling through and like this guy's a fucking hack tv director well, like maybe no that's... wonder this movie is stodgy as fuck maybe because he... the disconnect for me is when you realize that hermes pan was the choreographer hermes pan who choreographed fucking astaire and rogers which is great which is some of the most uh, iconic uh, dancing yeah whereas this is like i mean obviously they he had to work with what he got yeah, and I th- I did find myself wondering if this was a case of um, you know they're working with non dancers so their hands are tied somewhat. I mean, clearly. Which okay, like I'll give you that, but you know why not um, surround them with people who can dance and move the camera in an interesting way? Or like instead of having like it's a musical, they can be fantastic. So like instead of having long tracking shots of people thinking songs, but not. <laughs> really thinking them in the way their body moves, why not add some lyrical elements? Why not go a little Busby Berkeley with it? Why not have it be a bit more phantasmagorical? Oh, yeah. There's no um, there's no high camera at any point. No high camera. I mean, there's the scene where they like get on a carousel and do a little dance yeah. with the teaching number, the first teaching number when Liv Ullman's with the kids. The world is a circle uh, without yes. a beginning. Yes. Our, our faux getting to know you number. I, I was singing that around Tim, and, uh-huh. he, was, and he was like, well, that's the definition of a circle. Okay. <laughs> Not what Liv Ullman was trying to get across. It's kind of like Scientology. Read it again. Listen to it again. So you get, get what they want out you of it. You see why we don't invite Tim to the musical episodes? Even if he would come along. He... I feel like there's a musical he would come along for. Like, I mean, the Apple's been well documented at this point. But I, I bet we could find one that would tickle him pink. <laughs> well, if you ask him about musicals, he's always like, well, I like Spinal Tap. Doesn't count. <laughs> he says it does. That's a rockumentary. A rock mockumentary. A mock It's a more mock, of a mock piece. A mockumentary. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's kind of a musical, but... Yeah. Uh, it's no Grease too. I mean, oh my God, what is... Speaking of musicals, though, Michael York had been in Cabaret in 1972. Yeah. Hot off the presses, comes into Lost Horizon, and does what? 
he has barely anything. He's just kind of like there as the he kind of antagonist. He didn't sing. Didn't sing a note, but he doesn't sing in cabaret either. Just hit me, yeah. Um, and then, but he, they didn't even dub him. No, there was no reason to. There was no group numbers with any of the people. This follow, this breaks sort of like the general rule of thumb about musicals, which is, well, it breaks actually a couple rule of thumbs about musicals. One, that the song should advance the plot in some way. Yes. Many times that it was just pure digression and didn't mm-hmm. do anything. Two, something that I learned when as a as a theater undergrad was <laughs> kind of the the theoretical reasons behind musicals is when something becomes too emotional to say and express with words, they sing it. When mm-hmm. it becomes too emotional to express through song, they dance. And so there is a logical progression in the traditional musical of yeah. why people, so that way it's just not absurd. But this just like, no, they're just gonna think. <laughs> they're not even really overwhelmed because they're all, they all fall under, and it was actually uh, reminding me a little bit about the Sondheim musical Follies, yes. which I think exemplifies the sort of like psychoanalytical zeitgeist of the 70s. Yes. Where let's make entertainment, which is about us finding ourselves and either being with it or phoning it in. And, you know, like that whole kind of like really self-indulgent psychoanalytical, let's just be restrained yes. kind of thing. I mean, Follies is better than this, but like <laughs> at least it's got the second act where they go to... um wherever the fuck they go in that but um where it becomes like a phantasmagoria but like this like um it's just like so cerebral but not in an interesting way well yeah because the the and i mean they're hell david lyrics in the 70s it's it's essentially like a bunch of like really obvious platitudes oh absolutely and like I mean, there's some interesting instrumentation. There's like a sitar. There sounds like some. There's some. Well, yeah, and like the backrack music is like definitely a selling point for me. Yeah. Um, I decided that I wanted to cover this movie in the podcast because I became really obsessed with the soundtrack. Like somebody ripped the vinyl and put it mm-hmm. up on YouTube. Um, like musically, it's really. I mean, you know, it's backrack and it's melodic, and also he does. But you know. Bacharach isn't just like melody. He also does like these interesting like tempo yeah. changes. And well, I actually think Finch's first solo song. Yeah, I think that one kind of had them. Was like, whoa, this this music's like it's got so much interesting stuff going on in the music. Yeah, unfortunately, Finch is like walking, and it's not his fault. It's thinking. the it's the direction. It's like oh, like since when is walking and thinking exciting? Remember how he like jumped and screamed when he actually started like mouthing the words? Yes, yeah, and then he then he like <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking like in Fiddler on the Roof. There's parts where he sees his daughters running off with like non-Jews, with Jewish communist revolutionaries. I mean, <laughs> he has his thinking moments, but it's yeah. done. Jewison does that in a more uh, stylized way, where yeah. it gets a little echoey. We get a close-up, yeah. so it's like, okay, now he's thinking. Whereas in this, it's like, uh, is this a commentary song from someone else? Like, what? Yeah, it's just it's it's handled and again, so it's clunky. Liv Ullman, and you're watching her think. Which in another movie could be interesting yeah. if there was some actual dramatic heft. Yeah, but it's like wh- what's what's going on with her character? Like not a whole lot. It's like, yeah. I like this guy. Now I, I don't. Yeah, know if, will he, maybe he'll stay in Shangri La, or maybe he won't. Like it is very. It is like I mean I was talking about what we were watching and how it kind of reminded me of Brigadoon as well. Yeah. Um, but at least she even that character has more to do than Liv Ullman, Yeah. If I recall, and like. And even with Gene Kelly, he get he leaves Brigadoon, and we get to see his like asshole fiance who just cares about like 
who's coming to the wedding and like yeah. the world and it's very worldly and this woman I don't know like we don't we never get his counterpoint we never get Conway's counterpoint and like yeah well so, because they forgot to write her the way um, they wrote Jane Wyatt's character in the original in the original she again like a very vibrant yeah woman and in this movie you know she has this kind of like really passive teacher she's so, like she's so passive that we get her backstory from someone else yeah. From John Gilgood, who just tells us. Yeah. He's and then like we, Yeah, and in in the in Capra's in Capra's version, like she tells uh Conway about herself. See, which yeah, like yeah. it's funny that in a way it progresses in this one in that the women can also wanna go if they want to go with another man, the men just has to accept it. Yeah. But her character becomes much more, it seems to me She's totally passive and then in the um in the original um Gene Wyatt's character is like, yeah, I was instrumental in bringing you to Shangri-La. I Which thought you should come here. And it's been, like, that's forward. Would that's, have been so much more that's interesting. That's more forward. And then, which is interesting, is that the one, uh, well, there's two other, the two other female characters would be Sally Kellerman. Mm-hmm. She kind of just gets weird therapy. Yeah, she's she's troubled. She you goes can tell because she tries to get pills out of her bag. Yeah, she she goes from a neurotic pill popper who tries yeah. to commit suicide. Yeah. Early on, to after a couple sessions with a almost nameless guy who has no very little bearing on the plot. James Shigeta as uh, Toland. Sure. Um, <laughs> suddenly, she's this like. One of the only actual Asians. Almost like, I feel like maybe behind closed doors he gave her a lobotomy, like a Caroline Kennedy situation. I thought Suddenly, you were going to say a hot beef injection. Well, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but then the other woman, it gets classic lady treatment where Olivia Hussey's character mm-hmm. wants to leave. She ends up lying, saying, yeah. like, so it's revealed, John Gilgood, who is our great exposition master, yeah. reveals to us that she's been there for many, many years, and though she looks 20, she's very old. Yeah, she's and been there for 80 years. She's been there for 80 years. And if you take her out of Shangri-La... She'll age almost instantly and die. And, of course, she manipulates, though we don't know, even though it's pretty... I think it's pretty obvious that she's lying or yeah. telling a story, uh, uh, that she manipulates uh, Michael York and uh, Peter Finch mm-hmm. into leaving Shangri-La because she's actually they're lying. She's only been there two yeah. years, and it was all a plot to get Peter Finch to stay and replace the white the, the high llama. Yeah. Um, and of course she leaves, and she gets her comeuppance for even trying to upset the social order. Yeah, she ages instantly, becomes an old woman. But she kind of becomes like a pretty ET in the age makeup. <laughs> like her age makeup is really crazy. Yeah. I kind of love it. And then Micah York flips out and falls off the mountainside. But has the most quick flip. Yeah. You know? To be fair, that also happens in the original. Um, James Howard's character, upon seeing Maria in that state, immediately loses his mind and plunges off the mountainside. So at least that's consistent. Yeah. Now, this is what I don't get about the character of Maria. Mm-hmm. And she is... Is why her name is Maria? Well. <laughs> but beyond that. In, in the original, she was Russian. And okay. she she'd come there from from that Russia. makes a little bit but more again, sense. But again, like she had, um, it was the same story. She was on her way uh, to for the her wedding. betrothal, and her yeah, but got lost. Russia is so huge. There's the Siberian steppes, which shares with Mongolia. Maria. So it's like close at least. But yeah. like, where's Maria from? Argentina? Is she a Nazi daughter? <laughs> like, be. how does she come? That'd to be sh- funny if there are all these Nazis like ha- hiding out in Shangri-La. Well, when we get to that doctor in the end, who's like they get like all the all the doctors just get like super mellow and like. Yeah. Groovy. I Shangri-La. mean, can you imagine, though, had, say, a Norman Jewison directed this with how groovy he made Jesus Christ Superstar? Yeah. Like, if there was some... Oh, this would have slapped. Bro. Like, some real groove to this movie? Yeah. 
Like, but um, oh yeah, because um, oh, right. So Olivia this is the thing about yeah. Um, now in the original, um, again, character Maria played by a mononymic actress named Mario. Um, okay. She is also deceptive. Uh-huh. Um, it's basically the same uh, kind of setup. Like she really, really, really wants to leave Shangri La, but in the original, like she tell she blames. Uh, Chang for keeping her there says that when she tried to leave he locked her in a dark room like uh-huh. there's really kind of disquieting like abuse allegations mm-hmm. which sit very uncomfortable and how topical un- yeah sit very uncomfortably in times like or how these. timely I should say but and again like if you look at it it's like well maybe she was lying it's like well Jesus like okay so abuse victims lie but, but this is the thing so uh, Olivia Hussey's character um so she was lying about having been brought there a couple of years ago. I, she she makes it pretty clear from the beginning that she wants to leave. She's bored yeah. there. All she's, she has nothing to do there. And I guess it's possible that the way they're spinning it is rather than try, like her. She still throws Chang under the bus by saying that well they concocted this story just so you would come here, Peter Finch. Yeah. So she does use it, but she doesn't go as far as the abuse as right. the locking someone in a thing. So she's a little just more like. She just comes across more ungrateful. Yeah, um, but that's but what I don't get is that she says, "Oh no, I, they brought me here a couple of years ago." But the thing is, like, that's not true, because she she ages does age and dies. Well, so like the movie disproves her assertion. So like I think so she lied, but why did she did she lie just to get them out of Shangri La? Because she, she wanted to leave, and she knew. But wasn't she worried about what would happen, or did she not believe that? I don't story? think she believed it. That's weird because you think like you live somewhere for 80 years. And don't age. That you would believe in the magic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's weird. And also just the sentiment that like Michael York and who's an outsider who comes in and realizes that's not a place for him. And (laughs) and uh, uh, Olivia Hussey, who was taken there and been there for a long time and then wants to leave because she realizes it's not for her. They get severely punished. One ages rapidly and dies and the other goes insane and kills himself. And so it's essentially saying, well like like our way of life or die <laughs> conform to our lobotomized society which is a way that they would probably look at it this sort of yeah. like peaceful there's no action it's too peaceful it's kind of like the uh, uh, romantic version of the devil of Satan of Lucifer like yeah. Yeah, it's too nice in heaven I want to have fun I want to like yeah. I want it to be spicy so I'm going to do my own thing and he gets punished for it Yeah. So it seems like it would be okay except there are all those old women carrying water and yeah, there's George tons Kennedy of old women Plumbing. John Gilgood <laughs> was the age that he was for 40 years, you know, yeah. an old man for, yeah. for a while. And so it's, it is, I do think it's a little bit like, well, conform or die. And yeah. so I think it's a little bit reprehensible in that regard. The same way Brigadoon is kind of like a very pro-conservative kind of a film. But, you know, yeah. it's interesting that these utopias are so peaceful. You'd think, though, that there would be unrest just from boredom. There, when there's no conflict, people create it. Yeah. So I think, you know, I would be curious to find the same setup, but where there is and how they would address conflict in their utopia. Yeah, because that's 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 the question that I have, um, like looking at, you know, both filmed versions Mm -hmm. of Shangri-La is everybody just seems like happy all the time. And yeah, it's it's hard to imagine a world without disputes or I mean, I suppose discontentment. like it's plausible that discontentment and things like crime and stuff this is explicitly addressed in the original Mm. things like crime don't happen because when there's so much abundance it's like there's no there's no need there's no there's no money yeah everybody gets whatever it's like it's a perfect communist society in that regard yeah but then theoretically speaking but i mean if you get like any number of leftists in a room 
That's the thing. People like, are just human nature is to create drama well, and conflict. Especially- would it be like I would imagine it? I would like to see a Shangri La, which is um, kind of like a um, maybe like a pre writing society something like that where these societies kind of like fall into um kind of a natural Mm. equilibrium i just think it's like yeah but i'm not smart enough to say exactly how that would work because i'm not an anthropologist yeah i do think i mean (laughs) i suppose like early hunter-gatherer society is pretty pretty perfect in that regard but i mean isn't that kind of like isn't it kind of like paternalistic of me to assume like oh you know the little the little people in their natural I mean, it could, I mean, you know, you know what I mean. Well, I think it is interesting that Shangri La, because the High Lama is a Christian priest. We haven't really talked about him yet. Yeah. And and I think it's interesting because you were telling me that in the original, he wants to preserve pure, like perfect Christian society. Well, yeah, because the way that it's, um, it is, it is, it is sort of a flaw of the original to me that um, the the High Lama, um, and it's it's true in the the remake as well. Uh, the High Lama in the original was like a, a Belgian um, missionary who came there um, and has lived there since like the 1700s. Yeah. And his driving force is that Shangri-La is a place where uh, the great works of the outside world will be preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, the original film, uh, Sam Jaffe as the High Lama, the way he puts it is like, you know, like the Christian ideal and i think he means like christian in the sense of like a you know a christ-like sure sure society but it's still like very weird to hear because it's like well dude you're in the middle of tibet well even in this one (laughs) they call him the high lama which is indicative of sort of like a buddhist yeah tibetan peaceful and then when you go in there and you meet him and he's a european white guy charles boyer yeah with (laughs) yeah with an illuminated manuscript yeah which is which to me brings up associations with medieval church and medieval Christianity is far from the Christianity, yeah. <laughs> you know, that like uh, that you were just sort of talking about. Uh, yeah. And I think it's it's so but it's so typical of that whole like, you know, uh, white man comes to East and it's kind of like a, to use a more popular situation like the Doctor Strange setup. Yes. He's a, a vain, narcissistic neurosurgeon. Yeah. Who his hands are crippled and he tries to like, which ruins his life because he can't have his livelihood. So he like tries to find himself and he ends up in Tibet where he meets the ancient one and an old and ancient Asian man who teaches him magic and decides to make him the successor, which is exactly yeah. what goes on here. Yeah. The High Lama's like, oh, you finally found my successor because Chang wasn't good enough, even though he seems Apparently. to really know the place quite well. Yeah. So I feel like it's just that trope of white man come to native land and rules better. Yeah, it 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 really is. And um, this was a point that was made. Um, there are a couple of very good sites online. If you want, would like to read more about the film, we can put up the links to it. Um, there's a very good review by Glenn Erickson of DVD Talk dot com of the Blu-ray, and. Um, uh, Les Cinema Dreams at blogspot.com, which is the website uh, by the writer Ken Anderson. Um, but one of the things that Glenn uh, Erickson makes the point about Lost Horizon is that these elements are kind of like baked into the source material, like going all the way back to the, the novel. Sure. And, you know, it would be nice if these were updated, but, you know, how, I mean, it, and it is really this kind of like whitewashed paradise in like a Tibetan lamasery, which yeah. again is weird because you have like, Asian trappings and then 
Asian people don't really play much of a part in it. I mean, they're like they're the, cute little Asian they're kids. They're servants. Yeah, and then there's a there's one guy who's a monk, you know, James Shigeta, and then the important, you know, paternal figures are played by white men. Well, and, and not only that, like, so the character of Chang is supposed to be an Asian man. Yeah. And he's essentially like the butler or the major domo. Yeah. <laughs> and then to make it even worse, he's in this position of power. Yeah. He's also played by Sir John Gilgood. Yes. In, with <clears throat> very soft makeup. Yeah, with definitely prosthetics though. He might have had a facelift, so they didn't even need anything. <laughs> yeah, they I do. said I said we were watching it. There's a, there's a PA like standing yeah. behind him, just pulling Pull, back pulling really skin. hard. So it is kind of like weird, and he ends up looking like like Patrick Stewart as Captain Picard because of his yeah. high collar red outfit. Yeah, they give so, him a goofy hat because you know that's yeah. how those people dress. And then you meet the High Lama, and he's a white guy. Yeah, an old, extremely ancient white guy waiting for another white guy, white guy. to come take his <laughs> spot. God forbid the like the like therapist monk guy by what's his name again? Uh, Tolan James Shigeta. James Shigeta, who actually seemed to help the only person who legitimately helped somebody and like saved a woman from being neurotic and killing herself. Yeah, yeah, but but he's there just to dispense Eastern wisdom to this troubled yeah, white so, woman. I mean, yeah, it's fast. So it's essentially it's, it's almost a- too fast sell to talk about it because yeah. these tropes are so obvious. But I mean, they are there. But it's what's yeah. funny is that it's like. It's the the total like me generation thing of like, you're helping us. Your yeah. philosophy man is helping us. It's helping yeah. us to be with it. So it's perfect. They get to go there. They get to be helped by it. In the by it. In the end, they get to rule it. Yeah. They get everything. Yeah. You know, it's like we're still respecting you, man, but we're still in charge of you. Yeah. And this is this is a good quote uh, from Ken Anderson on the La Cinema website about this version of the movie. Fairly dripping with good intentions, est seminar philosophizing, and me generation navel gazing. Amen. That is a really good summing up of the kind of um, cultural raison d'etre of this movie. But the thing is that with, <laughs> with the navel, it doesn't even go like speaking of Sondheim's folly. Is that really that such like a psychoanalysis oh, inspired yeah. musical? I mean, it's about people like dealing with disappointment yeah. and regret. This this is totally the hunter version of like, yeah, I'm not trying to make it great. I'm just trying to like play in a bit with the times, <coughs> give them what they want, but nothing too much to have to think about. Yes, exactly. But it, but it's just kind of like I just came here to feel good, man. Which is funny because I just left it feeling like, oh my god. <laughs> we watch these like people die, like, and there's no. You con- know, you know what's a good counter um, counterpoint for this movie is uh, the Adam Curtis documentary, Century of the Self. Okay. Because it talks about how. Um, Freudian philosophy uh, repurposed for um, advertising Mm. and commercialism eventually grew into this very self-centered human potential movement of the 70s, which you definitely see reflections of that in this film. Oh, for sure. It it definitely feels like kind of like post hippies like going off on a, a well, retreat. It's also that whole trope that I can't stand of like everything about modern society is terrible. Yeah. Yes, there's not a lot. There's a lot of things that aren't great, but I would go crazy in Shangri La. <laughs> I think I would be like Michael York. Like I, it's yeah. like at what price immortality? Yeah. To be bored? To not be stimulated? Well, especially because um, I guess it's okay if you're like a, a George Kennedy or Sally Kellerman and you're not carrying the buckets of water sure sure yeah they're just overseeing it yeah they don't have to do shit there because i'm kind of again i would like to see it maybe reimagined as like this communist utopia where there isn't work in the sense of um the kind of um 
pointless work that we do like in a in a kind of a technocratic society sure. where or work that you do for um a boss right no it's work um, work that embedders both yourself and everybody yeah work that, that like for example like labor done in the home and the care of one's own family equally shared among like a yeah. family unit well it would be interesting if part of their duties in shangri-la as outsiders was to also have to do some sort of work yeah Instead of just like, it still was weird. It was like, they tried to present like it was this pure ideological yeah. communist society, but it wasn't. Yeah. It was closer to what the USSR actually was. I would love it if Bobby Van's character was forced to do like, like if he was pressed into doing like what is considered women's labor, Ugh. where he's like doing like, like he has to do laundry and, and like he has to cook and he has to like change the diapers oh, and so he has good. to sew. And then, but then he ends up like being like really into it. Yeah. Because like the the gender division in uh, of labor in Sangrila like doesn't exist. Yeah, that everyone does everything. So I would love that. That would be tight. You didn't get it. <laughs> Ross Hunter wouldn't give it to you. Ross Hunter would not allow it. No, he just wanted um, guys in uh, loincloths, marigold colored loincloths. Mm. <laughs> what a, what a number! Many, most of whom weren't even Asian. Yeah. The the the, the population makeup seemed to be distinctly Western hemisphere. Yes, it was. But with a lot of Asian kids. A lot of Asian kids. It's like they, they go there, they're white, but they have Asian children. It's the magic of Shangri-La. It keeps oh you my going. God, maybe they take the babies. Oh, they, they, they the steal babies and they kill, yeah. To program their Shangri-La. Because look, Shangri-La has <laughs> this some... Is, this is some like uh, La Storia Official, like Desaparecido shit. Well, they, they have some fairly nefarious plots. Like, yeah. they kidnap them. They hijack these people yeah. on a man who is trained and who threatens them with a gun, yeah. who turns out to be an agent of Shangri-La. Yeah. And they lie to them quite a bit. Yeah. So I don't know. That's the thing, um, and this is a little bit of a problem with, um, I don't know about the novel, but certainly with both versions of the film, is that there's a lot that's left out in what the, the people of Shangri-La like, tell their guests. Mm. Like, they're very stingy with information, and it's in a way that, I mean, you almost understand why the John Howard slash Michael York character is so suspicious, because, like, these people are not being forthcoming. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe it's like, well, we can't tell you right off the bat that we're all, like, 200 years old. Because maybe you wouldn't believe it. You have to, like, learn it. But they also seem to do things like, hey, the porters who we've been waiting here, we at Shangri-La have been waiting for for over two years, you've been waiting for since you got here. Oh, they're here, but we're not going to tell you. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. And then, like, because we don't know that, say, Liv Ullman's character was in to bring him, like, that there was, that they all decided, it feels like this council of old elders, you know, like, plotted (laughs) to, like, essentially kidnap people and make them rule us. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, it creeps you out. I think if you look, if you, if you look too closely under the surface of this movie, it's really just, like, like, um... A, a new development in like Las Vegas built on a shit landfill. <laughs> you know, it's just like built on trash. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes sense. Um, yeah, the now this movie, as we pointed out earlier, like flopped horribly. Um, there's a wonderful write up on the DVD talk website, which again we'll link where um, the author talks about being an usher at the National Theater in Westwood oh, wow. when the movie premiered. Um, and I guess it was like in a roadshow edition. And um, people were basically walking out. I don't blame them. And, you know, nobody liked it. Um, so 
According to this blog, um, this person, like as an usher, probably saw, says they saw the movie about uh, 25 times in the whole movie that you see on the Blu-ray um, was there for about a week or week and a half. Um, then an editor arrived from the studio and they just started chopping, chopping. Um, like for example, the fertility dance mm-hmm. uh, got rid of um, the whole like pageant mm-hmm. pageantry around it. That's all gone. Uh, it says uh, two more slow walk and talk introspective oh, songs God. were yanked out as well, making the show perhaps 15 minutes shorter. The editor simply rolled the deleted scenes up and stuck them in his pockets. Big tape splices went through the projector where the scenes had been taken out. Wow. Yeah. So they were basically trying to, like, save the picture, but I don't think like there was any saving Almost it. real time. As real time as it can get for yeah. that kind of editing. And that and it's it's cool if you're a nerd like me and you're thinking about the actual process of mm-hmm. like physically chopping pieces mm-hmm. out of the print. You know, now yeah. it'd be like, okay, we're gonna give you a new, we're gonna upload a new file and. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't know. There, I don't think there was anything to save it. It's because everybody, like the the, the producers, the creative team involved behind it, didn't have the ambition or yeah. the desire to do it. Yeah, it's just another example why remakes usually suck. Yeah. Yeah, because again, um, I I recommend the classic. It's an enjoyable film. I'm I'm interested in seeing it yeah. based on what you've said. It's um, it's a very nicely put together script where all the the character motivations make sense. Um, there's a little bit of old timey racism in it, but yeah. you know, um, <laughs> nothing you can do about that. No, um, this one's available on Blu-ray and mm. also for you can stream it. Um, on iTunes, I think also on Amazon. Um, mostly I recommend the soundtrack. Um, it's hard to find on CD. Um, you can probably pick it up for like about 40 bucks on, on Amazon. So mm. I recommend just going over to YouTube. Uh, we'll link it, you know, listen to the vinyl. Uh, there's some great Burt Backrock songs on there. Mm. Anything else you want to say about Lost Horizon, Darren? I don't know if there's anything else to say. I feel like we were quite comprehensive. I believe we were. I think it's done and dusted. We killed it. Well, let's consider this horizon lost forever. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ross Hunter and Charles Jarreau or Charles Jarrett. (laughs) Jarrett. Thanks, you fucking hack. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's anything left to be said after that. (laughs) Mahalo. (laughs) Mahalo.